Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is Murder Coaster. Punk rock. It was a battle cry for alienated and disaffected youth around the world. Outsider kids who wanted to go wild in a cruel world where they saw no future. The rejected, the misfits, banding together and causing chaos. And in many ways, no band reflected the anarchistic spirit and hedonism of the hardcore punk movement better than Fang from Berkeley, California. Their songs would go on to be covered by Nirvana, Metallica, Green Day, Mud Honey, and the Butthole Surfers, among many others. But the story of Fang is more than free-spirited punks going wild in the streets. It is a story of drugs and addiction, of forlorn love, broken friendships, shattered trust, betrayal of a code, innocence lost, and murder. Ladies and gentlemen, Today we bring you the story of Fang and the tragic death of Dixie Lee Carney, told in four acts. Let's begin. Act One, Berkeley Heathen Scum. Samuel Martin McBride was born in 1965 in Berkeley, California, to two adoring parents. He had one older sister, and his father was a forestry professor at UC Berkeley. He never wanted and grew up a child of privilege in the suburban enclave of Albany, just outside of Berkeley. Berkeley was a hotbed for liberal free thinking in the 60s, and this extended to parenting, where a pervasive let-them-be-what-they-want attitude prevailed. And Sam, who describes himself as a university brat, was given a lot of free reign as a child. As he himself says, A lot of us didn't have any fucking boundaries. And Samuel took this freedom and ran wild with it. By just 11 years old, he was already drinking and smoking marijuana and getting into all kinds of mischief and crime. He began his life of crime stealing BMX bikes from the neighborhood children. Now, a lot of people laugh about this. Sam himself does in interviews, but if you were a little kid in the 1970s, your BMX bike was your life, your everything, and getting it stolen, man, it would have been truly heartbreaking. It's, it's really not cool, not cool at all. So he was soon arrested for that, as well as vandalism and grand theft auto, basically just running amok, as he says. Mainly... It was crimes of fun, steal a car, run around and crash it, shit like that. In 1977, Sam's father was on sabbatical in the United Kingdom, and it was there that Sam would hear the clarion call of punk rock when a kid in Wales told him he had to hear this crazy new record he'd just bought. That record was Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols, and it was at that moment that everything changed. 
when the needle fell on that vinyl and the sound of stomping boots and electric guitar came pounding out, followed by Johnny Rotten's sneering voice. A cheap holiday in other people's misery. The juvenile delinquent suddenly knew what he wanted to be. A punk rocker. Yeah, dude, I remember hearing that album for the first time, and I had a very similar response. You know, even now, over 45 years since its release, that album still sounds so powerful. You know, fucking amazing songs. Anarchy in the UK, Bodies, Fuck, God Save the Queen, such a great song. No future, no future for you. You know, and why they didn't like the color fuchsia, I'll never know. <laughs> but uh, then I got the Circle Jerks album, Group Sex, and I literally thought the record was broken. It was so fast and weird. I tried adjusting the speed from 45 RPMs to 78. Seriously. Oh my God. <laughs> I was just a little kid. Well, Sam's freedom-loving parents let Sam wander around London on his own. Just a 12-year-old little university brat off on an English adventure. He met and befriended lots of wild London punks that were loitering around the tube, the English subway station. The London freaks were amused at the crazy little American kids so eager to learn about punk rock music. When he returned back to the States, he dyed his hair purple, pierced his ear, and when the Sex Pistols played their legendary last show ever, at the Winterland in San Francisco, Sam snuck out of the house and went and saw them. It's, it's insane. You know, his first punk show is the Sex Pistols playing at Winterland. An absolutely legendary show. They, they basically broke up on stage and never played again. Johnny Rotten sneering into the audience at the end of No Fun. Did you ever get the feeling you've been cheated? And all the San Fran punks... Well, they thought this wild child from Berkeley was pretty cool and took him under his wing. He was only 13. As San Fran scene girl Missy May says, I'm a San Fran punk, and the 415 punks hated the East Bay punks. They're not allowed to come to our city. We beat their fucking asses the minute they got off the BART train. The only motherfucker from Oakland or Berkeley or anywhere that we would let get off the BART train was Sammy. He started hanging out in San Fran at the early, legendary punk spots. The Deaf Club, the Mabue Gardens, seeing bands like the Avengers, the Nuns, Crime. This is early San Fran punk, before hardcore, before the Dead Kennedys, or before MDC moved to San Fran. And here's something I did not know. When Jim Jones moved to Guyana, they rented the People's Temple's church in San Francisco out. And there were a whole bunch of punk shows there. How crazy is that? Jim Jones has been the subject of so many songs, so much album and flyer art for so many punk bands. And punk bands actually played in his church before the massacre. That is wild. And it was a wild time. As Sam says, There were no rules. A lot of booze, a lot of drugs, a lot of teenage angst and sex, a lot of fights. It was great. Sam was a wild man at shows, 
known for always slam dancing in the pit and doing crazy stage dives, backflips off the speakers, and ended up with the nickname Slam and Sammy for his antics. He got together with some other East Bay kids, and they started a band called Reign of Terror, practicing in his mom's house, Sam playing bass. None of them knew how to play their instruments, and they never played an actual show. But they had stenciled shirts, and they were punk rock as hell. Yeah, Reign of Terror, it's a, it's a good name for this guy. Well, he met some older guys with a band called Shut Up, who asked him to sing for them because they liked his fucked up attitude. And they started playing dive bars in San Francisco like the sound of music. Since Sam was only a teenager, he had to sit in the parking lot waiting for the band to come on, then come in the back door, and after the show was over, leave the bar and go back out to the parking lot to wait for the band. Then Sam's friend, Joel Fox, went to try out to be a drummer for a band headed by guitarist Tom Flynn, a Connecticut native who'd recently moved to California. Sam told Tom, You guys need a front man, a lead singer. Tom agreed and asked if he knew anyone. Sam told him, Hell yeah, me. That band was called Fang. And the rest, as they say, was history. But it was a tough time to be a punk rocker, to go against the norms, be something no one had ever seen before. The jocks at his school, they jumped Sam, beat him up several times until he said, fuck it, and quit school in the ninth grade, much to the chagrin of his highly educated parents. I guess that lenient parenting didn't work out so well, in this case at least. But Sam was born to be a wild child, and drugs soon followed. As Sam says, Speed was the drug of choice back then by punk rockers, and a large percentage of the population shot it up, especially in the East Bay. There was a lot of younger kids all running around, shooting speed and eating acid. And I started using heroin when I was 15. Now, it's well known that the Bay Area, and San Francisco in particular, was the epicenter of LSD, stretching back to the early 60s when the CIA was conducting mind control experiments with their MK Ultra program. And one flew over the cuckoo's nest author, Ken Kesey, managed to get his hands on the stuff and have huge parties called acid tests, which resulted in the formation of the Grateful Dead whose manager, Owsley Stanley, would become one of the most renowned LSD chemists on the planet. As the FBI themselves state in their files, quote, LSD originates from San Francisco, California, through a renowned rock group known as the Grateful Dead, end quote. And it wasn't long before Sam, ever the juvenile delinquent, hooked up with a big acid family and was selling the stuff on the parking lots of Grateful Dead concerts. He wasn't the only purple-haired punk rocker selling acid at Dead shows. I can tell you there were bunches of us. I mean, I mean them, bunches of them. <laughs> Sadly, though, Sam said he never did like the music of the Grateful Dead, even when high on acid. But he was a big, huge Bee Gees fan, believe it or not. Sam explains that punk rock is something that is whatever you want it to be. We all ran pretty tight as punk rockers. 
but there were very different ideas of what punk was. You had the more political side of punk rock and the more criminal, nihilistic, fuck you side. And I was very much on the nihilistic, criminal, fuck you side of punk rock. As the 70s ended and the 80s rolled in, punk was giving way to hardcore, a faster and more aggressive style of music epitomized by bands like Black Flag, The Circle Jerks, and Fear. And Fang played with them all, coming to epitomize the sound and raucous, nihilistic, anarchist spirit of the hardcore bands. Fang was getting popular. Well, as popular as an underground Berkeley hardcore punk band was going to get, at least. And writing a flurry of amazing songs about LSD, werewolves, and Charlie Manson. Same things that we cover on our show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they were a satirical and goofy band, which was often misunderstood. When they were interviewed by Maximum Rock and Roll's Tim Yohannan, he thought the song Fun with Acid was actually about the Vietnam War, when it was literally just about having fun high on acid. And like a lot of punk music, they were all about being shocking, often poking fun at Berkeley's liberal, politically correct politics. At the time, Berkeley was the most handicapped, accessible place in the world. So they wrote a song called Destroy the Handicapped, just to shock and be morbidly funny. And they'd always get a fan or a friend with a disability to come on stage and sing that song with them. They decided to put out a record. Their friend's Crucifix, also from the East Bay, had done an album with Universal Records. But guitarist Tom Flynn didn't want to be produced by some old fogey who didn't understand the spirit of this new thing called punk rock. So he decided to do it himself. As Tom says. I lived on Bonar Street in Berkeley. So these friends of mine would send me letters to Boner Street and they would still get delivered. So Boner Records. It wasn't trying to be a record company. It was just a way to put out the first Fang record. I thought maybe 10 people would listen to it. But as we said in our opening, songs from that album have been covered by everyone from Nirvana to Metallica, and it's still popular to this day. And that album was called Land Shark and featured the iconic song, The Money Will Roll Right In, a little ditty that goes, The money will roll right in. The album started selling ended up getting distributed nationwide and started getting played on the underground airwaves, much to the surprise of the band, who couldn't believe people outside of Berkeley and San Francisco knew who they were. As Sam says, We were like number three in Penn State on the college radio station. What does that even mean? There'd be all these kinds of kids that knew the songs. We'd look at each other thinking, This is fucking crazy. Fang became part of a core group of bands in the 80s that included Tales of Terror from Sacramento and Code of Honor from San Francisco. They were a family. Often Sam would get them high on acid and they'd end up on the streets of Oakland, partying with the prostitutes and junkies who were Sam's friends. The other bands were blown away by the craziness of Oakland, the sex and drugs and debauchery, and that Sam knew all these street people. They began calling Oakland Sammy's Town. 
Soon this extended to more than just a place, but a state of mind, of absolute hedonism, and it was shortened to Sammy Town, and a new nickname was bestowed on Slammin' Sammy. Sammy Town, a name that would stick to this very day. But for band founder and guitarist Tom Flynn, it wasn't fun anymore. Sam was strung out in heroin and living in Tom's house. Sam's girlfriend had three kids, and Tom would come home to find the kids playing while Sam and his girlfriend were in the bathroom shooting up. So he called it quits. He thought that would be the end of it. But Sam asked him, can we go on? And Tom said, whatever, I don't care. Do what you want. So Sam brought in his best friend, Joe Miller, for bass, and they recruited Bill Collins, who was able to duplicate Tom's signature guitar sound, a dark and brooding tone, but with catchy hooks and a dash of surf rock sprinkled over it. And the band continued to tour the country. For Sam, touring was perfect for his LSD enterprise. At this point, he was getting raw crystal LSD, which was small, easy to conceal and travel with. He'd then roll into a town, mix the crystal with grain alcohol, and lay the mixture on the blotter paper, laying as much as 50,000 hits at a time. Sam would find the local pot dealer and ask him if he could get rid of some acid. Then it was on to the next town. Once he'd made a connection, he'd just mail the blotter paper to them whenever they needed it. While Sam might not have liked the music of the Grateful Dead, there is no doubt he was carrying on the Grateful Dead spirit, spreading LSD and anarchy across the country, playing huge parties in the middle of the Nevada desert where everyone drank punch spiked with Everclear and acid, running around high and free and opening their minds through chemistry. Totally, seriously, it was, it was just like the Merry Pranksters in the early 60s, only turned on its head and punk rock as fuck. Sam would even bring acid to the butthole surfers in Texas. And I've always said the butthole surfers are the grateful dead of punk rock. Heavily LSD influenced, two drummers, very psychedelic, with these big screens showing bizarre images. Only with the grateful dead, it was hippy dippy shit on the screens. With the buttholes, it would be car accidents and surgery scenes sex change operations, gory horror movie images. But more than all of that, there's like kind of this cult thing. Like, Butthole Surfers fans are a really special breed. Very dedicated. People who like the Butthole Surfers just really, really like the Butthole Surfers, just like the Grateful Dead. You know, what do they say? Not everyone likes black licorice, but those that do like black licorice really, really like black licorice. And that goes for both the Grateful Dead and the Butthole Surfers. In 1985, Sam got busted in Texas for half a joint and ended up in jail for days. It was a breaking point in some ways. He was tired of America, so the band moved to Europe. They hung out in England for a while, but eventually settled in Bremen, West Germany. This is wild and, like, pretty fucked up. I don't know if this is still going on or not, but at the time, there was like a full-on war going on between the punk rockers and the Nazi skinheads. Punks would run the streets in one section of town, Nazi skinheads the streets in another part. 
Once, walking home late on a freezing night, bassist Joe Miller decided to cut through the Nazi section of town and got jumped by some skinheads. He beat them off with his bass. And he still has that bass to this day and treasures it for saving him that night. And Sam, as morally questionable as he is, is a hater of fascism and racism. So the band went to some anti-fascist demonstrations, and Sam was apparently asked to join a gang called the Outsiders that would fight the Nazi skinheads right in the streets. You know, know, if you're going to fight and beat somebody up, might as well be a fucking Nazi. They recorded an album in Germany called Spun Helga. And artist Joe Coleman did the album cover for the re-release. You may remember Joe Coleman from our Albert Fish episode. He paints bizarre serial killer portraits, has an auditorium that contains that infamous Grace Bud letter written by Albert Fish. He's He's a cool guy, man. Anyway, as the name Spun Helga suggests, yes, Sam was importing LSD into Germany. He returned to the States while he had his German girlfriend dealing acid for him, planning on returning to Germany. But she got busted and Sam became wanted by Interpol. So no more Germany for Fang. It seems like Sam has a habit of fucking things up for everybody, everywhere he goes. It does appear that way, yes. And as the 80s progressed, Sam's heroin use was getting out of control. He'd run out of dope and end up sick on stage, throwing up, sometimes on audience members who couldn't get out of the way fast enough. But oddly enough, the crazy punk rock kids, they loved it. Him puking on stage and falling over. and It is very, very Darby Crash. Heroin had completely infiltrated the San Francisco punk scene. Will Shatter, the legendary bassist from seminal San Francisco punk band Flipper, overdosed and died. Yeah, they were an intense band. Very, very slow, but just so heavy and dark. I love them. It's like grunge before grunge existed. Kurt Cobain used to wear a homemade Flipper shirt. And unfortunately, they'd lose a lot of band members to heroin over the years. Sam's heroin use got so bad that sometimes the band would just play without him, inviting fans on stage to sing. (laughs) Red Hot Chili Peppers used to do that with Anthony Kiedis, (laughs) sometimes even giving them lyric sheets. But punk to the core, the band just kept at it. You know, the show must go on. And Fang went out on tour again. According to their roadie at the time, James Angus Black, they were supposed to play a show in North Carolina at Chapel Hill, but they got all mixed up and ended up in Roanoke, Virginia somehow. Life before cell phones and the internet. (laughs) And it was there, at a party, that Sammy Town would meet a sweet and pretty punk rock girl with a heart of gold named Dixie Lee Carney. Hey, horror movie lovers. We want to let you know about an upcoming film called I'll Be Glad When You're Dead. An homage to 80 slashers movies. They got an Indiegogo campaign giving away all kinds of fun swag. So give them some support and love. There's a link in the show notes. That's I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, the Indiegogo campaign. 
Ladies and gentlemen, act two, the punk rock girl from Roanoke. Dixie Lee Carney was born June 14th, 1965, and grew up with her religious mother in Roanoke, Virginia. Roanoke, often called the Star City of the South, is the largest city in the Blue Ridge Mountains, which literally surround the city, casting it in their shadows. It's nestled in the heart of the Old Dominion, very much a part of the South, with religious and conservative ideals, a rural, working-class ethic. Growing up in Roanoke, Virginia, during the 1970s was tough, and Dixie lived a hard scrabble life with her mother, the two living in a boarding house. Economic challenges were a part of daily life for many families in Roanoke. The city's economy was undergoing a transformation, and traditional industries like textiles and railroads, which had once provided stable employment, were on the decline. This economic shift resulted in job losses, plant closures, and a sense of uncertainty for many residents. Young people in Roanoke witnessed their parents and neighbors grappling with unemployment, which created financial stress and instability within many households. Education was also affected by these economic difficulties. Schools in some parts of Roanoke struggled with funding, which led to overcrowded classrooms, outdated materials, and limited extracurricular opportunities. These challenges influenced the quality of education available to young Roanokers and affected their long-term prospects. Furthermore, like many places in the United States, Roanoke was not immune to issues related to civil rights and racial tensions during the 1970s. Although progress had been made in the civil rights movement, Roanoke was the South, and racial disparities persisted in areas such as housing, employment, and education. Many neighborhoods in Roanoke faced racial segregation and disparities in access to services, which created divisions and frustrations among the city's residents. These social and political issues were daily experiences of young people growing up in Roanoke. So, while Sam found punk rock and liberal, progressive Berkeley through parental leniency and juvenile delinquency, Dixie found punk rock in a rebellion against outdated ideas and traditions, an unfair class structure, and an often bigoted and rurally conservative landscape. But for both of them, punk rock was a means of discovering a new family, a tribe, a place where the outsiders and rejected could fit in and not be judged. Dixie started hanging out at the local venue that held punk shows, the Iraqi Club. She made friends with an older punker named Cindy, and the two got a house together, forming a band called Pretty Pathetic. And I love that. It's an awesome name for a punk girl band. You know, punk always has these really cool puns in wordplay, especially in the names they give themselves, like Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys. There's Jello, a nutritionally poor, mass produced fake food, and Biafra, which was a place racked by civil war, famine, starvation. The name juxtaposes American mass consumerism with real world horrors, which is, you know, pretty much what the group did musically as well. Dixie and Cindy were a big part of the Roanoke punk scene. And when bands came to town from out of state or even from different countries, they'd all crash at their place. They put up lots of legendary bands like Verbal Abuse, 
FOD, Ugly But Proud, and even the extremely famous UK band GBH. Everyone who stayed there all say how sweet and generous Dixie was, cooking them food, always smiling, and just being a gracious and kind host. So when Dixie heard Fang was in town, she was excited to meet them. She went to a party where the roadie James Black was hanging out. This is that same roadie that drove them to Roanoke instead of Chapel Hill, where they were supposed to be going. So kind of in many ways, it was a crazy act of fate. Dixie immediately started asking James where Sammy Town was, exclaiming how much she wanted to meet him. So James introduced the two. Dixie and Sam hit it off, and she joined the band as they traveled to Chapel Hill for the show, then brought them all back to her place in Roanoke to stay. She and Sam were smitten, and she traveled with them in their van down to Virginia Beach, then to Morgantown, where... At a party, a bunch of rednecks jumped them and started a fight with all the punkers, which I think goes to show what it was like to be a punk in the South back then in those days. While Dixie really liked Sam, Sam was, well, a hustler, always looking for a score. So he, of course, started asking her if she could get rid of some acid. Dixie, being a big part of the Virginia music scene, was, of course, able to get rid of some. He gave her 100 hits, which went fast. So when Sam got back to California, he mailed her 500 more. Now, Dixie grew up with a single mother in a boarding house. She wasn't from privilege like Sam. So having some money, it was nice for her. And she took it seriously. She had a good head for business and started moving some serious acid, having him mail her thousands of hits at a time. Meanwhile, the band and Sam were beginning to crumble. In San Francisco one night, the roadie at the time had accidentally sideswiped a couple of cars. Now the van was wrecked, and they owed these people money for smashing into their cars. So who does the band turn to? Sam's parents, of course. Old mommy and daddy, those permissive Berkeley liberals who just loved their juvenile delinquent son. They loaned the band $10,000 to buy a new van and settle with the accident. From then on... Whenever the band had any money at all, they'd give it to Sam to bring to his parents to pay them back. But at some point, it seemed the debt should have been paid off. But Sam was still asking for more money. So the band goes to Sam's parents to find out how much he'd given them. And he hadn't given them anything. He'd ripped off his own fucking band to support his heroin habit, which had escalated to thousands of dollars a day. Oh my god, that's a lot. Hardcore punk bands are more than a musical group. They're a family, a gang, a unit. Sam had ripped off his brothers. The band was utterly disgusted and horrified. And Fang was no more. It was the end. The wounds were too deep, the water under the bridge rising in a flood that smashed that link between them. Sam slipped into the far, far depths of being a junkie. He was living in a literal cardboard box on top of Barrington Hall, desperately trying to sell enough acid to keep his habit going. But he was so fucked up, he couldn't maintain the business. So, ever the hustler, he asked Dixie, who was now thriving as a dealer in Roanoke, to come to California. Dixie was in love with him. She would do anything for him. So, of course, she immediately... Headed out. 
Beyond the Shadows podcast. In the darkest corners of our universe lie spaces where even the light won't go. Places where terror and the unknown lurk, always waiting. Join Ryan and Scott on the Beyond the Shadows podcast as we pull back the curtain and peer into the darkness. We'll examine hauntings, true crimes, mysteries, UFOs, exorcisms, reincarnations, mysteries, and all things dark. Join us as we go Beyond the Shadows. Ladies and gentlemen, Act 3, The Hotel California. Dixie Lee Carney had absolutely no idea what she was getting herself into coming to California. Sam was now living in his parents' garage. He'd managed to break up the band, betray his friends, and exiled himself from much of the punk scene at this point. While Dixie came to the Bay Area with dreams of wild punk rock love, she was met with someone so smacked out on heroin he was basically emotionless, living only for his next fix. And there was no sex life to be had at all. Junkies aren't capable of sex. To put it bluntly, his dick was useless. He was just a pathetic mess living in his parents' garage while she crashed at Max Fox's place from the band the boneless ones. Dixie was desperate for help, reaching out to everyone in the Bay Area punk community, asking what she should do to get Sam clean. But they'd all tried to help him before. It seemed like a lost cause at this point. Most had just given up on him. You know, just to show how sweet Dixie was, I want to relate a story that was told to me while researching this case. So there was this notorious punk house in West Oakland on 8 and Peralta, called the Bard House is is in a horrible neighborhood, like a, a seriously scary part of town. Fang had lived there for a while and converted into a rehearsal space. Well, this band from Texas called Ex Pistos, they started staying there after Fang left. And two of the girls in the band, they both had children. One just a year old baby, the other a three year old. And Dixie, Dixie would always bring them care packages of diapers and baby formula and groceries. That's just what she was like. She took care of people, helped people, lots of people. She was just an extremely kind and giving person. And Dixie didn't do hard drugs and was shocked over how much money Sam spent on heroin. Tens of thousands of dollars going into his arm. And how, though he was doing these huge deals, he couldn't manage to save anything, blowing cash on things like a new motorcycle. She wanted to start making real investments, funnel the money into legitimate businesses. She didn't want to live a life of poverty. She wanted to make something of herself. And as she helped Sam run his LSD business, the dealers realized she was better to deal with, was reliable, wasn't a junkie, was good with numbers and money. And this is where it gets murky, because you mostly hear Sam's version of this story. There's just countless interviews with him out there. But I reached out to the Bay Area punk scene, and I asked people who were there, including Sam's former best friend and Fang's bassist, Joe Miller. They all paint a very different picture than him. According to Sam, 
He and Dixie got a place together in Oakland at Pleasant Valley Apartments. But the people I talked to said Sam never lived there. It was completely her place and that he was living in his parents' garage. Sam also says she was his girlfriend and she cheated on him and betrayed him by stealing his customers. But honestly, it appears to me, from like what I can gather at least, that they were pretty much broken up. I mean, how do you even have a relationship with a hardcore junkie when you're clean? Someone on that much dope is useless. Useless to talk to, useless to hang out with, utterly useless in the bedroom. And there's no love life there at all. And unless you're a junkie too, it's not much of a relationship being with a heroin addict. And apparently, they're barely hanging out at all. At least, that's what I was told by people who were there. But this much is definitely true. In a bid to get clean and quit dope, Sam headed down to Los Angeles, trying to escape the temptations of his hometown of the East Bay. Perhaps he really did want to get clean for Dixie, try to be a better person. We don't know. Yeah, and just to be clear, we were not there. Most of this is from interviews, a lot from the fabulous book, Give Me Something Better, which is an amazing oral history of the Bay Area punk scene. And like I said, I did personally reach out and talk to people like Sam's former best friend, Joe Miller, who was the bassist in Fang. But still, it's, it's all literally hearsay. We're not investigators. We're just storytellers. And we don't have fact checkers or anything like that. We're just going to tell you what we've found. Some of it's conflicting. And, you know, you can sort it out for yourselves and come to your own conclusions. And as always, all our resources will be listed in the show notes. Well, going to Southern California didn't help Sam kick heroin at all. He was still using, now shooting up coke and speed with his heroin to keep motivated. He's broke and parking cars for money at a Renaissance festival, just utterly miserable. According to Sam... He starts getting word from his East Coast customers that Dixie is both cheating on him and bad-mouthing him to people, saying that he was ripping people off. He hears that she's planning to move to Texas with his biggest customer. Now, this may all be true, but they were supposedly broken up at this point. And he's gone. He's in L.A. Maybe she did hook up with this Texas guy. So what? She's lonely and desperate in a strange, strange place. He has her come all the way out there to California, thousands of miles away from her home. And then he's just a totally useless junkie. And then he just bails to Los Angeles. What does he expect? Apparently, no one wanted to do business with him. He was too fucked up. Had he actually ripped anyone off? I have no idea. I mean, I don't. But... He apparently did rip off his own bandmates, his brothers. So it's not outside the realm of possibilities he pulled some shady deals, given the facts. But again, we don't know. We're just speculating, throwing it all out there. Well, when Sam is told his Texas connection, his best customer, is in the Bay Area looking to score, he decides to head back to his hometown to see what's going on for himself and begins the long drive up from Los Angeles. He works himself up into a frenzy on the drive, and when he makes it to Berkeley, he immediately buys a bottle of whiskey and wanders the streets, 
slamming the whole bottle down until, completely wasted, he goes staggering over to the Pleasant Valley apartment complex in Oakland. He claims he looked into the window of the apartment to see his Texas connection coming out of his bedroom, pulling up his underwear, and flew into a rage. Again, he's saying this is his apartment and that this guy is coming out of his bedroom. But I was told this was Dixie's apartment, not his. And he had been in L.A. for months by his own admission. Uh, Interestingly enough, some of the guys from the Michigan band Ugly But Proud were staying there because, as always, Dixie let out-of-town bands crash at her place. If you were punk rock and needed a hot meal and a place to crash, Dixie was always there. That's what everyone says. She was just very generous and kind. Ugly but proud say that Dixie had all of Sam's belongings in garbage bags and had told them Sam and she were done. That when she saw Sam, she was going to tell him she didn't want to see him again. They were sleeping in the back bedroom when Sam arrived at the apartment. They'd just gotten back from a Grateful Dead concert in Sacramento the day before. Hal Expo 89 shows. I was there. Great shows. They must have partied hard because they slept through what happened next. And what happened next is without a doubt terribly, terribly true and undeniable. On August 6th, 1989, Samuel Martin McBride entered the bedroom of the apartment where Dixie lay sleeping on the bed. He put a pillow over her face to muffle her cries as he wrapped his fingers around her neck and squeezed the life from her with his bare hands. Dixie Lee Carney was only 24 years old. Hello, I'm Mark. I'm Gina. And together we are Men's Wellness Theater. Or at least we try. Uh, We try to survive it. (laughs) We're the hosts of The Worst, a podcast where I deep dive horrible subjects and tell the story to Gina... And I tell terrible, tasteless jokes to kind of break up the awful, soul-crushing details that you bring us. I try and you try, and that's what makes it great. Yeah, I mean, stop being upset. We are trying our best. And honestly, we're weird people. We find this makes it a little more palatable to get through the horrible details of some of the worst true crime. Yeah, because otherwise, I just want to take an ice pick to my own eardrums. I can't do it anymore. No. So if you're the type of person who finds, you know, Weekend at Bernie's the most hilarious movie ever, we might be up your alley. Give us a try. Absolutely. Just look for Mental Illness Theater on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you happen to use for podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, Act 4. The Aftermath. On January 2nd, 1990, the exploitative and sensationalist television show, A Current Affair, beamed into televisions around the world and opened with host Maury Povich saying, Dixie Carney grew up in Roanoke, Virginia. Like most other girls, she had a mother who loved her dearly and a life that should have been full of promise. But somewhere went tragically wrong for Dixie. She got involved with the strange world of punk rock music. She followed her boyfriend from a punk band out to California, and it was there she died. And while her mother grieves, the mystery remains in this punk rock death. 
Sam had grabbed all the cash lying around the apartment, which was evidently quite a bit, stole Dixie's car, and took off in a panic. He headed to the house of Patricia Kwan, where, according to police reports, he, quote, flashed a lot of money, bought some heroin, and shot up until he passed out, end quote. Then he was off to the East Coast, trying to evade detection. After finding Dixie's purse lying on the bathroom floor with the contents strewn everywhere, her friends grew concerned and began to knock frantically on her bedroom door. When no one answered, they finally pushed the door open to find her there, dead in her bed beneath the covers. The punk scene was horrified. This was not what punk rock was about. As crazy and sometimes violent as punk can be, it's really about unity, freaks coming together over the common bond of music, especially the Berkeley scene, and in particular, 924 Gilman, which was more than a venue, but a communal gathering place, almost an experiment in socialism, and the genesis of legendary bands like Operation Ivy, Green Day, Crimp Shrine, Neurosis, and Rancid, among many others. Yeah, my friend's band played Gilman, and I was just so excited. So I, I drove down there to see him. You know, punk rock's all about support, right? Uh, you have to be a member to get in there. It's like a cooperative space. And I carry that membership card with a lot of pride. Dixie's friends all lamented about how sweet and kind she was. What a good person she was, always there for a friend in need. Bands all told how she'd given them a place to stay and a hot meal, kind and generous to a fault. Bay Area punk scenester Sham said, Dixie Lee was the sweetest fucking girl on earth. Sam's former best friend and bandmate, Joe Miller, just couldn't understand it. He was so close with Sam, people thought they were literal brothers, even lived in Sam's parents' house where they gave him his own room. He just couldn't wrap his head around how someone could kill a person as sweet and kind as Dixie. To this day, he says he still can't get or see what the real motivation could have been. It simply makes no sense. America's Most Wanted featured Sam as he trekked across the country. He was in Baltimore, New York City, then Kenosha, Wisconsin, where he hung out with punker Pat Fagan, confessing the grisly murder to him. Pat was horrified, stunned. He would eventually go to authorities and tell them what Sam had said. He said he was compelled to be a witness because he hated the stain the murder put on punk rock. He didn't want people to associate punk rock with senseless murder. Sam even went back to Berkeley for a bit in a bold move, but he eventually ended up in Anchorage, Alaska where he managed to finally kick heroin, working in a screen printing shop. But someone recognized him up there from America's Most Wanted and a current affair, and people started whispering. Soon Sam got word, they're on to you, better get going. So just a half step ahead of the law now, he goes to the airport, but it's snowed in. All flights have been delayed for 24 hours. And during that delay, federal marshals track Sam down and set up an operation in the airport. Agents disguised themselves as middle-aged tourists. One even sat behind a newspaper stand. And when Sam walked into that airport to board his flight, they swooped. They had him. 
his six-month-long time on the run was over. A current affair aired yet another episode on the crime, somehow taking credit for Sam's apprehension, which they titled Death of a Groupie, where they compare the crime to Sid and Nancy, saying Sid was the leader of the Sex Pistols. That show is such trash. First off, Dixie was not a groupie. She had her own band. She was an integral part of the scene, not some hanger-on. And with her and Sam, she was more of a business partner. Secondly, Sid Vicious was definitely not the leader of the Sex Pistols in any way. He was brought in as a replacement for bassist Glenn Matlock, who they fired because he liked the Beatles and washed his socks. I guess that translates to he wasn't punk rock enough for them. But he was vastly more talented than Sid Vicious and wrote most of their songs. Firing him was a huge mistake that caused the band to implode shortly after. But what I really think they're getting wrong is that Sid and Nancy... As fucked up as they were, they truly loved each other. There was romance there, hot and heavy. Sure, it was a total gutter romance, heroin and hopelessness, a very nihilistic love, and they were far from monogamous, but there was a burning passion between them. And I just do not feel that from Sam at all. In interviews, he doesn't pine about how much he loved and adored her. He doesn't call her his soulmate, doesn't break down weeping over the loss of his lover at his own hands. He simply says she was cute and smart and good at dealing drugs. Seems like it was all just about money for him. In fact, he constantly states how angry he was, not that she was cheating on him, but that she was stealing his best customer. Of course, mommy and daddy were there for Sam. They got him a good lawyer, and he was offered an 11-year manslaughter deal. Basically, a slap on the wrist. Now, some weird things happened at this time as well. Apparently, the big acid dealer, above Sam, who was supplying him with all the LSD, she got her house raided, and she fled the country. And the little dealers, the ones below Sam, the guys in Texas that he was supplying, they got busted as well. Is it all just a coincidence or maybe did the murder attract the attention of law enforcement who decided to go after everyone in Sam's orbit or was it possibly something shady? You know, I don't know. I don't know, but this did happen and people are still talking about it. It's, it's just awful strange and that's all I'm saying. And I talked to someone who was at the actual sentencing. They went just so they could hear some of the details firsthand so they could try to process what actually happened. Sam's mom was there, and she was apparently being very antagonistic towards anyone who wasn't fully supporting her son. Now, this hearing, the sentencing hearing, it was open to the public and a matter of public record. There were supposed to be microphones, documented statements, but this person said all that happened was that the prosecution and the defense went up to the judge whispered back and forth so no one could hear them and then the judge passed sentence and that was it sam was sent to san quentin to serve his time right there on the san rafael bay where the richmond bridge stretches over the 580 slipping down to his hometown of albany and then berkeley eventually oakland a place his friends called sammy's town he was held in the northern pinnacle of the bay area san francisco just below him trapped in a cage, 
and outside, the world was changing. One day, Sam turned on the radio in prison to hear Nirvana's teen spirit come blasting out. He was stunned and thought, what the fuck? They're playing punk rock music on the radio? Little did he know, Nirvana, who were becoming the biggest musical group in the world, actually loved Fang, had covered their songs, had even gone to their shows when they toured through Washington and the Pacific Northwest. And who knows? Maybe Kurt Cobain had even eaten some of the acid. Sam spread about everywhere he went. And as grunge went big and punk became mainstream, Sam's friends were cashing in. His friends Tim Armstrong and Matt Freeman from Operation Ivy formed a new band called Rancid, taking the punk spirit to a new generation of MTV kids. And that little band from Berkeley with the cute singer that used to always play 924 Gilman, Green Day, they exploded. Green Day catapulted from the Berkeley punk world into huge worldwide mainstream success, playing packed, sold-out arenas. Like it or not, punk rock's time had finally come. And, you know, you could call it selling out, but it was more like a movement whose time had finally come. And for a lot of people, there was a sense of vindication. This music they'd loved for so long that they got teased for listening to, even beat up for listening to. Now, it was the biggest thing in the whole fucking world, and everyone loved it. And Fang? Fang could have been part of that moment, part of that renaissance of 90s alternative music. But Sam McBride chose drugs and murder instead, which is really sad. Because, say what you will about him, he loved punk rock music with all his heart and soul. When he first heard the Sex Pistols, it, it changed his life forever. He'd worked so hard to be part of that world. And when that culture's time came, he was rotting away in prison for murdering a completely innocent girl. Samuel McBride served six years of his 11-year sentence and was released. The punk scene was torn. Many wanted nothing to do with him, ignored him, left the room if he entered, crossed the street if they saw him coming. Many were straight up angry and upset, but others were more forgiving. Lenny Filth from the band Isocracy says, People bitch about the time he served. And to me, it's like he served his time that our judicial system gave him. You don't ask for more because you did something wrong. You take what you get. He didn't get out early. He did his fucking time. What's he supposed to do? Ask to stay? Uh, and Jimmy Crucifix talks about the division, saying, These people made these flyers. Wanted. Sammy Town. They put them up in Lennon Studios. But I tore them down. I just thought it was ruthless. When there's drugs and alcohol involved, who knows? Fat Mike from NoFX talks about seeing him and sheepishly telling him his wife said he wasn't allowed to talk to him, to which Sam replied, What? I murdered my girlfriend and now I'm an asshole for life? Fat Mike just thought to himself, Yeah, that's how it works. You murder your girlfriend. You're an asshole for life. Yeah, and you know, I had a friend who got in a bar fight and he ended up stabbing this guy. But the guy lived. But my friend, he served more time than Sam. And this is a fight between two grown men where the victim lived. But anyway, true to his spirit, Sam started another incarnation of the band with Grang Langston on drums, Bill Burnett on guitar, and Josh Levine on bass. 
Their first show was at the Trocadero with the Dwarves. <laughs> the Dwarves, man. A wild fucking band, often labeled scumpunk. Before this show, Sam received over 10 death threats, but that didn't seem to bother him. He said, If somebody's going to kill me, I'd rather see it coming. People picketed the show, and audience members threw bottles at them, but they kept at it, and Sam seemed to have finally settled down. He worked as an electrician during the day, got married, and had two kids. But then he supposedly slipped back into heroin, and his wife left him. But Fang never stopped playing. They've gone through many lineups, but they're still playing today. They're on tour right now. And it appears Sam is completely sober, and has been for some time now even working with addiction services. The band has a whole new fan base, a new generation of kids. Sam's friend, tattoo artist Cosmo, says, You know, man, Sam killed Dixie, but he's not a murderer. He fucked up, but it's not in his heart. And is it in his heart, being a murderer? I don't know. I've never met the guy. I've never talked to them, but I've watched a ton of interviews with him. There does seem to be a bit of callousness, coldness. Again, it's just, it's just my opinion, but he just doesn't express the remorse I'd like to see for either killing a girl or stealing a kid's BMX bike. It's almost like he thinks it's all cool. And the cold truth is this was a tragic and senseless death of a girl who is unanimously described as being incredibly kind and generous and dedicated to the spirit of punk rock. A terrible loss for the punk community and the world as a whole, really, for who knows what she might have done with her life if she'd been allowed to live. And I think with that, we're going to wrap up this punk rock craziness. Take what you want from it. Form your own opinion. But we're going to be back next week with another punk-associated murder. This one in the skateboarding world. You old-school skaters probably already knew who I'm talking about. But if you don't know just gonna have to tune in next week and find out thank you so much for listening dear listeners and fellow freaks stay safe out there and you know we want to hear from you got a case you think we should cover did we get something wrong you just want to say hi drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com that's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com see you all next week